The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in May 2008. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we welcome Laura Linney to the program. Laura made her off-Broadway debut in 1991 in John Patrick Shanley's Beggars in a House of Plenty, the next year, 1992, Broadway debut in John Guare's Six Degrees of Separation. Other shows that followed, including Chekhov's The Seagull, Ibsen's Hedda Gabler, another Chekhov show, Uncle Vanya. Tony nominated for two shows for Arthur Miller's The Crucible in 2002, and a Tony nomination for Donald Margulies' Sight Unseen in 2004, which, by the way, Laura had earlier done in 92 off-Broadway. You've seen her recently on television in HBO's John Adams, Emmy Awards for Frasier and Wild Iris. You've also seen her on television in the various different tales of the city. Academy Award nominations for The Savages, Kinsey, You Can Count on Me, other recent movies including The Squid and the Whale, Love Actually, Mystic River, and The Nanny Diaries. Hi, Laura. Hello. Hi. The only one I did not mention is Les Liaisons Dangerous, which you're currently starring in at Roundabout. Uh, actually, your third Roundabout show, the other two being uh, Hedda Gabler and Uncle Vanya. Mm-hmm. How's it feel to be back at Roundabout starring in Les Liaisons? I love saying that. (laughs) It's fantastic. It's always... It's always a big relief to be in New York and doing a play, and, you know, I'm loving it. I'm just loving being here and loving the schedule and loving the people, and we're having a good time. Well, tell us about your character, Marquise de Mertoy. The Marquise de, Marquise Mar- Mar- de Mertoy. Is, uh, she sort of represents the worst of the ancient regime, which uh, sort of dominated the culture before the French Revolution. Uh, she's an aristocrat. She is a little ahead of her time as far as her gender politics are concerned. And she is very involved with a former lover of hers, who's played by Ben Daniels, the Vicomte de Valmont. And the two of them get into all sorts of scheming and trouble and, and a large downfall, actually. Well, what do you mean by a little bit ahead of her time? Well, she was, there, there are large uh, sections that Christopher Hampton has written in, in the, uh, the first act of the play, the playwright, is beautifully written, where she sort of expresses what it is to be... Uh, female in that period of time. In the 1780s. In the 1780s. Right. Um, that there's behavior that is acceptable and not acceptable, and what she has done to circumnavigate those um, those rules and regulations for herself. So what appealed about this character, who most people would look at as pretty evil? Well, she's complicated, and that's always interesting. You know, the psychology of her is very, very interesting, and I'm still trying to figure her out as I do it every single night. It's more, you know, the great thing about theater is that things reveal itself to you slowly a lot of the time. Um, But it really wasn't the character so much as just the play itself. I had seen the original production um, in, I think it was 84, with Alan Rickman and the sublime Lindsay Duncan that Howard Davies had directed, and I was a drama student at the time. And it had an enormous impact on me as it did on virtually everyone else who saw it. And it just stuck with me, and it's never been done in New York since. So when the opportunity came up, I was like, absolutely, I I would have played anyone in this in this play. Well, was it something that you'd, you'd looked for and always, were, were you in fact talking with Roundabout? Certainly Todd Hames, the artistic director, often talks with artists and says, what are you interested in doing? So was this a case of, of he came to you and said, uh, what about this play, or did you say to him, well, I've we, always wanted to do this? Well, we've been talking for a long time. I've done two shows, as, as you mentioned, with The Roundabout before, and they were both sort of challenging experiences, and I think Todd was, was afraid that I would never come back to The Roundabout, <laughs> which is just not true. Um, so I was happy to uh, 
to go back. And I don't remember who I, we've been talking about it for so long now that I don't even remember who brought it up to who first, quite frankly. Um, and it was but we've been talking about it for about for over two years, I think. I used the word evil before and I actually mm-hmm. meant to avoid it. I'm wondering if you think this character is, in fact, evil or is she in some way a product or a response to her times? I think she's both. I think she's both. I, and I don't think she's just evil. I think she behaves badly. I think she's sociopathic, hmm. quite frankly. I think she's a little bit of a sociopath. Um, and she behaves out of desperation and out of need and out of jealousy and out of a, a sense of dominance and revenge. And um, she's she's hungry. She's hungry for power and attention. And and so it's it's a combination of all of those things. And she's a woman who's in corsets and... You know, she's bound. She's literally bound up. All of those women are bound up in corsets and paniers. And, you know, the the rules and regulations were all very strict about what they could and could not do. But at the same time, it was a very liberal, debauched time. You know, the libertines were running rampant. And um, so it's a fascinating period of time. Well, you've, you've played many women who are you know, lovely to look at, but they tend to have very complex characters, very different layers as you get get to know them better. Is that what appeals to you in, in looking for a character, the, the, the complexity of the character? Or it's probably other part of it. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, I'm, I'm sure that's part of it. Absolutely. You know, no one is one thing, uh-huh. and that's what makes human beings so fascinating, at yeah. least to me, you know, is to see what the balance that pulls back and forth. And, and then that's also is what is dramatic, what I find dramatic. And would you describe her as a feminist ahead of her time, you know, a couple centuries well, ahead perhaps? And, you know, I think she had some some issues that were she could articulate some feminist issues. But I, I mean, I, she, I mean, she behaves so badly that <laughs> she's not a great <laughs> example for womanhood. I mean, I, I mean, I don't think at all. It's interesting to hear you say that because so often in talking with actors about roles, they say, you know, they have to like the character. They have to find mm-hmm. the kinship with the character. Mm-hmm. So if this is someone who behaves badly, mm-hmm. how do you spend eight times a week time playing someone who who you might not like. Well, there are things about her that I do like. So what do you like? You about know, her? I certainly like her style. I like her wit. I like her her desire and her and her her hunger and her ambition, you know, is is to to play someone who is hungry, who is power hungry, you know, is a little fun, actually. Get your adrenaline running. And that's that's not so bad. Well, you mentioned Ben Daniels, who plays Valmont, yes. her, her co-conspirator, former lover, yes. now co-conspirator. Yes. How do the two of you work together to develop your roles, or did you work together to develop? Yes, Ben is a gem on stage and off. He mm-hmm. is an absolute wonderful human being, and um, we've all fallen madly in love with him, everyone in that theater. Uh, and we're very, very lucky that he's here, you know, doing Velma. So we we met. I met Ben first when we were auditioning in in London. It was very hard to get anyone in the United States to accept the role. Oddly enough, to accept um, the role, no one would take it. Huh. What, <laughs> Which what? I, you know, I don't know. <laughs> was it the specter of Alan Rickman, know. perhaps? No, I don't think so. I, you know, plays are meant to be done. Yeah. You know, so and I'm and I'm sure Alan would be the first to say, "Go give it a go." You know, if hmm. you dare, because <laughs> it's so difficult. Um, but uh you know no one would no one would take it you know agents were leery there was a strike pending nobody wanted to commit to the theater at that point so so we went to london and auditioned you know many wonderful wonderful actors and ben came in and was just 
spot on from the minute he walked in the door. So, so we were very, very lucky to, to get him. And how about Mamie Gummer? You worked with her in HBO's John Adams. Yes, yes. And I, I was thrilled when Mamie uh, was cast because I just, you know, she's another one. We're, it, it's, a, it's a very happy company. Uh-huh. We really enjoy each other's company and, uh, and we laugh a lot and everyone's very quick and it's just a, I'm very, very happy to be a part of this ensemble. So then how do you create tension on stage when you're so happy backstage with each other? It makes it much easier. Does it? Actually, of course, because you feel safer and you're, you know, you're, you're in a safe environment. Um, and everyone's so capable and everybody's so good. Because so. there is tension throughout the show between you and, mm-hmm. and, and, and Ben's character, but also with some of the other characters as well. So it mm-hmm. must be difficult eight times a week to bring that level up and then at the end just calm down and relax. No. I mean, that's just sort yeah. of what we do as actors. So we're, we're, we're used to it. I, I had no idea how difficult it was going to be to execute this this play. I knew it would be hard because it's a notoriously difficult piece to do, but I had no idea how hard it would be actually the, the technical demands of this play with the language, the the costumes, the, the size of it, the sort of classical nature of the piece. Um, and all of us, the, our entire you know company really hold hands and throw ourselves off the cliff <laughs> every day because it's it really is a um, it, it's a fantastic thing to to uh, test yourself with. Certainly, the story is now an old one. The play itself, as you mm-hmm. say, some 20 years, two film adaptations of the original story, one of well, yeah. Christopher Hampton's script, one of an, an alternate yeah. adaptation. Do you still sense that there's an audience out there being shocked every night? Yes, absolutely. You can hear it. What do you hear? You can what, hear it. What? You hear everything from nervous laughter to to, to titillation to gasping to... I mean, you, you know, there's certain things that, that are just shocking, regardless of what time you're living in. Mm-hmm. And do you then try to, to play into those moments, or do you just let them... No, I think they, they sort of speak pretty loudly on their own. I mean, you certainly protect them, and you set them up as well as you possibly can, but if you try and keep your hands on them too tightly, it'll, it'll thud. Mm-hmm. Well, let's jump back. Uh, when did your love of theater begin? <laughs> I don't even remember when it started, to be honest with you. I, I, uh, you know, it's been the one constant thing in my life, and and I have always loved it, and it's where I'm most comfortable and where I always feel the best spending my time. And, um, you well, know, there's no better life, really. Well, we should mention your father is a well-known playwright, the mm-hmm. respected player Romulus Linney. Yes. But you didn't really grow up with him because your parents divorced when you were an infant. Yes. So you yes. grew up with, with your mother. What influence did your father have on you both as a kid but also now as an actress? Yeah, well, he's, he's had an enormous, you know, influence on me. And they, I, they were, my parents were separated by Central Park, so I would spend, uh-huh. you know, I was a typical kid of divorced parents in the in the 70s and I would go back and forth between Central Park I would see my father on weekends and and he would take me to the theater and he would take me to rehearsals and I would sit in the back of HB and watch Herbert Berghoff direct a play and you know so I I was exposed to you know really working theater you know very early on and during the summers my father would go up and write it in um, New Hampshire on Lake Pleasant and in New London New Hampshire there is a summer theater there called the New London Barn Playhouse, where my father was an apprentice in 1951 and 1953. And I was to spend the summers with my father, a month of the summer, it was the divorce agreement that I would be there. And and I said I would go only if I could go work in the theater. So 
my father went to Norman Ledger, who's, who was who ran the theater at the time and who was also an apprentice with my dad in the 50s and said to him, Norman, my daughter wants to work in the theater. Can you work her really hard and she'll come home? And so I went and I think I worked 14 hours and I never left. Hmm. And I broke every child labor law known to man. And I was <laughs> happy as happy could be. And, and how old were you at this point? I think I was 12, 11. I was wow. 11. And I was running, I was running lights and, you know, I was hanging things and I was a technical apprentice for wow. three seasons there. Yeah. And it's worth noting that your father, while a prolific playwright with over 40 plays to his credit, is not a playwright who has had great fame. He's always worked. He's always had productions. So I'm wondering about growing. You grew up in the theater, but you grew up around a wor- working theater, yes. not yes. the glamour of theater, Correct. I assume. Yes, you're right. You're absolutely right. You know, I watched him work very, very, very hard. And I watched him work with the smaller theaters and the, the commissions from the regional theater system. And, you know, I watched him suffer when plays were trashed in the Times and and uh, got to know the, the actors who would come over and have dinner and listen to the conversations that they would all have. And it was a, a wonderful... Um, a wonderful life to watch unfold and also really taught me the lesson that you have to love the work above all else because when things are bad, which they're going to be, that has to sustain you. You know, when you are slapped badly, um, critically or any other way, you know, the work has to feed you enough so that you, you don't despair too badly. Well, as we talk about influences, there's a quote I just loved reading, and I always hope these are accurate, but that you used to sit in front of the record player and go into the world of the albums that you listened to. Winnie the Pooh, the Laurence Olivier version of Three Sisters, Hedda Gabler with Claire Bloom, and Jesus Christ Superstar. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Amongst others, yeah. That's an eclectic mix. Yes, yes. But yeah. at what age? I mean, to, to mix Winnie the Pooh with with Three Sisters is pretty fascinating. How old were you as you're listening to this? Yeah, stuff? I just remember sort of rolling around on the shag carpeting, you know, and getting as close <laughs> to the speakers as I possibly could. So we know we're in the 70s yeah. based on the carpeting. Yes. But no, I was young. <laughs> no, I was young and always always fascinated hmm. by it. And did you, from childhood, always know that you wanted to work in the theater? Presumably yes. not running a lighting board, but doing something else. Well, actually, I, I always knew I wanted to be in the theater. It took me uh-huh. a very long time to admit I wanted to be an actress. I was very shy about that. Hmm. Um, and uh, But I always knew I wanted to be in the theater. And quite frankly, I would have been happy in, in many other disciplines of the theater. You know, I, I just happened to, to end up in acting, and I'm very, very grateful that, it, that that's where it led me. But... But I really honestly know that I would have been happy as a dramaturg or a stage manager or I don't think I'm talented enough to be a designer of any kind, but um, certainly the running of a theater, things like that. So it took you a long time to admit you wanted to be an actress. Admit to yourself or admit to the To uh, other the people. To the other people. Yeah. Uh-huh. I sort of really believed at the time it wasn't something I could just say. I don't know why. I just uh-huh. felt I, I had to really earn it before I could... I don't know. But you were acting in shows in high school. Mm-hmm. And then when you went off to college, was that to to be in theater at yes. that point, yes. very clearly? Yes. I, I think I sort of came out of the theater closet when I was, uh, <laughs> I think I was, I remember actually having a conversation with my mother about it, sort of saying to her, because it was going to affect how I applied to colleges. So I think that's when I first started to sort of say I, I really would like to study acting seriously. And Northwestern wasn't the right match for you? That's where you went first? It wasn't. It's a wonderful school, and I had a, a very good year there, but it wasn't the right school for me at the time. 
Um, but I had a great year there. And then I, I went to Brown, which was the right school for me, which I loved. And then I went to Juilliard to be trained. Did, did you study drama at Brown? Yes, I was a theater arts major there. Yes, with an emphasis in theater history. Now, I read that while you were at Brown, I believe, that you appeared in one of your father's plays, Mm -hmm. which some have suggested, even he has suggested, that it's loosely based on his relationship to you. This is Child Byron. Mm -hmm. So. Mm -hmm. What, you weren't doing it with your father. You were doing it at school. Mm-hmm. Did, did the other kid? I mean, they obviously saw the name on the script. It's mm-hmm. not that it was a mm-hmm. coincidence. Mm-hmm. Did you know at the time that it was something that he, at least thematically, had related to his oh, relationship? Of course I did. Oh, absolutely I did. You know, hopefully not many other people knew it at the time. <laughs> I think that would have been just too too awkward. But they, they had put it in the season... At Brown, my senior year, at, you know, I'm sure clearly, you know, hoping that I would, that I would do it. I'm, uh, but, um, and I, I really thought about it. I thought, do I really, do I want to do this to myself? And do I want to do this to him? Do I want to do this to the my father? The layers of psychodrama to have to be Absolutely. Huge. But then I also thought, you know what? I will never have the opportunity to do this again. Hmm. And this is an environment where it's safe and, and why not? So... And I, I almost was thrown out of it because I got the chicken pox <laughs> in my senior year in college. And I was quarantined for a while. So, Was, it, all emba- was it all embarrassing to you? Oh, Dad, why do I have to have a play about me? And why do I have Oh, to you in- have no control over a writer if there's a writer in the family. Yeah, but but, you, but you're the child and the father's writing about the child and you're it. Well, he wasn't. He was writing about. It's, it's historically it on, accurate. Yeah. There, there are some. There are some similarities. Uh-huh. Absolutely. And there, there are some thematic things in there that are that are based on autobiographical emotional layers I would say so yes but um, but you know writers have to write what they write so so you went on to Juilliard and I was fascinated the New York Times seems to interview you every couple of years so there's <laughs> there's a, a lot to look back on and it was sort of fascinating to see that that uh, in one interview that I saw that you had done actually with one of the Juilliard publications you talked about your terrible audition for Juilliard and elsewhere in a New York Times quote uh, the retired administrative director of the drama division Harold Stone talked about your audition for the school as being one of the most remarkable of his long career. It's well I think I think what striking. you I think what you read about was the league auditions mm. which happened at the at the end of your four years at Juilliard. I don't know if they even still exist anymore and that was the audition that was absolutely terrible. Uh-huh. My audition to for Juilliard um, was was okay. I did <laughs> Hermi- I did Hermione very badly. And then I did a piece from a William Master Simone play, play called Chivalry, which I had done in Summerstock, and that one I did okay with. So I was, you know, and people ask me all the time, you know, what is your big break? What was your big break? And it really, honest to God, was getting into Juilliard. Hmm. There's no, there's no question. Yet, for me, at some point when you were there, you got hit with stage fright. Yes, at, at one point I thought I was going to leave school. You know, I sort of hit my wall of. Which is not unusual when you're in a training program that's four years long and is very, very intense and. Um, I hit a period where just nothing was working. I couldn't, I became terribly self-conscious and mm. and very afraid and anxiety-ridden and I couldn't walk and talk at the same time and I and was very unhappy. It was, my work was not going well. And when your work is all, is all you have and is all-consuming and you're 20, however years old you are, it, it feels insurmountable. And I really considered seriously dropping out for a bit. Um, <laughs> and I, there's a fantastic teacher who, God bless him, and Harold, um, 
John Sticks, excuse me, John Sticks took me aside and said, so what's this I hear about you leaving school? And I said, well, John, you know, everyone's been very nice to me, but I don't think I'm really an actress. <laughs> I went through this whole sort of self-indulgent boo-hoo-hoo thing. And he looked at me and he said, this is where you're supposed to fail. He said, you're supposed to fail here. So good. Fail. Fail. Fail hard. Fail. And then keep going. And he was right. It was just a period of time where I had to work through it. But it felt so extreme to me, and it felt so literally insurmountable that I thought, oh, I've made a big mistake, and I need to go I need to go away. Hmm. <laughs> so I stuck with it, and the faculty was, was su- supportive, and I tried to be as patient with myself as I possibly could, and it was something that I worked through, but it was, it was not fun. It was, I was, and anyone who's been through periods of, of stage fright know that it's, it's no joke. But if you can get through it, it's 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 very beneficial. And really, honestly, right after that, things did start to click for me in a way that I didn't even understand. I think I was right on the brink of things breaking open, but it was very uncomfortable. It was not a good feeling. So if you were going to drop out, would you have dropped out of theater altogether? Or do you, yes. You would find another another area to work. No, no, I think I was I think I was fantasizing about joining the Peace Corps or something. Oh, I was, really? you know. <laughs> I was very dramatic. <laughs> it was a very, you know. But at a school like Juilliard, what mm-hmm. what is the training? What was your training? What did it give to you? Cuz you'd already gone through an undergraduate program, you'd been growing up around the theater. What what it is instill in you? It taught me how to work. How do you And mean it that? taught me, well, it taught me it taught me, you know, an enormous amount. I mean, it, but it taught me how to solve problems, basically. It taught me how to look at a script, to marry the technique with my imagination, to, to ask myself the right questions, to make the right choices, to know how to control my body, my voice, my, my dramatic mind. Um, it taught me how to work with people. Um, you know, it gave me a a context in which to work that I can, I feel confident that, you know, I can be placed in many different settings and many different situations with many different types of material, and I will know how to go towards it, or at least I'll try. I don't always succeed, but I, I know how to, you know, at least jump in. Mm-hmm. So, Well, the first role that I mentioned off-Broadway was John Patrick Shanley's Burgers in a House of Plenty in 1991. Mm-hmm. Was that right after you left Juilliard? Had you done anything Well, in actually, I, I graduated from Juilliard and I went right across the street to Lincoln Center and I uh-huh. was the understudy for Six Degrees of Separation. Ah. So, for a long time. And I loved it. I was the happiest understudy, <laughs> I think, in the history of the world. Um, and I made my off-Broadway debut, re- technically, really, with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I went away for a while, and, and then I went back to Six Degrees when Robin Morris took a leave of absence and, and filled in for her. And then I, then I went to La Jolla and did a production of Fortinbras that Lee Blessing wrote. And then Beggars came. And then I did Beggars, yeah. Mm-hmm. The subsequent show at MTC mm-hmm. became very important, mm-hmm. sight unseen. Mm-hmm. It probably didn't. Well, even at first, because mm-hmm. you got enormous attention for a relatively small role. Mm-hmm. Can you can mm-hmm. you tell people about this character that you played uh, in her own way, a bit forbidding as well, but not as not as apparent at first yes. as as your current role? Uh, I played a character named Greta in Sight Unseen, who is a a journalist for an arts publication. Uh, the play is about a, a painter by the name of Jonathan Waxman, who has come to London 
for a retrospective of his life's work, though he's relatively young, sort of based on a sort of archetype of Julian Schnabel or something like that, a very young, prolific, um, successful artist of uh, in, during the 80s. Your average on a font to read. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and he, um, he goes to visit his old girlfriend who he left in college, and it's a relationship that's never quite healed. Um, but during the course of that relationship unfolding that you see in these scenes that are out of order chronologically, there are two scenes in the middle of the first act, in the middle of the second act, where he's being interviewed by this journalist. And chronologically, it's what happens at the very end. If you, if you dissect the whole thing and put it in chronological order, it's actually the last scene that happens. And these two scenes are, are brilliantly written, and they are inherently dramatic and in, filled with inherent conflict. There's a male and a female. There is an artist and a journalist. There is a German woman and a Jewish man. Uh, they're a neutral territory. And it's a fantastic conversation that they have, and it, and it explodes. Um, and it was great fun to do. I, I loved it. Because of the structure of the play, mm-hmm. your character only interacts with the artist yes. you don't you're not in any of the other scenes it, was it essentially like being in in a two scene play for you since it was that that world was just that interview well yes and no i mean my responsibilities were not just to that scene though my responsibilities were also to the balance of the first act and the balance of the second act so i would certainly listen and um it was only it's only a four person play so but i was 28 i think 27 28 and it's one of the happiest periods of my life was doing that play during that period of time it was everything that i had learned at juilliard was finally making sense um i was in new york i was a working actress we started at mtc we moved to the orpheum it was just it was thrilling it was it was an, i was in a hit play <laughs> it was really fun and in listening to the play did you sit there listening thinking Point would be fun to play the other female never, role. Never, 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 never. So let's yeah. let's flash forward because, as John mm-hmm. said in his introduction, a couple of years ago when mm-hmm. the show was done again mm-hmm. by the Manhattan Theater Club, this mm-hmm. time on Broadway, mm-hmm. you assumed the female lead. Mm-hmm. How did you come to that? And and at what point did you start thinking about that role, which obviously you had at least heard, if not watched, played many many times? Yeah. I am um, Deborah Headwall did it originally and it was brilliant. I mean that entire company, Deborah and Dennis Butikaris and it was just a fantastic, you know, group of people and um but Lynn Meadow called me who's head of Manhattan Theater Club and she said, Laura, we're gonna do the first revival of Sight Unseen and we would like you to play Patricia. And I sort of was puzzled because, you know, in your mind, you sort of don't grow up. <laughs> I'm, I'm not old enough to play that. <laughs> and I realized, well, yes, you know, many, many years have now gone by. I think it was 15 years or something. And uh, I thought, well, God, all right. You know, and I really had to sort of get to know the play all over again because I had heard it, but I'd never really seen it other than the rehearsal room. Um so it was fantastic, and my life had changed so drastically that I sort of see those two productions as sort of a book bookends, in a way, of a whole period of time. And I, I loved doing it. I loved playing at the Biltmore, which is a beautiful theater. Um, it was uh, it was a fantastic experience, and it was there is something about when you know a play intimately, when it's just been sitting in your bones for 
15 years laying dormant, <laughs> you know. And when you do sort of unearth it, you realize that you do, you know it in a way that only time will help you with. Well, you had been great, and now you're Patricia. How did you then mm-hmm. discover that character? How did you then become the other one? Well, you just do all the basic actor homework uh, that you do with, uh, so with any other stuff. So you've never seen it? Yeah. No, you, you come to it fresh. I yeah. mean, I certainly knew certain things about the play, about how it functioned uh-huh. from having done it before. But you have different people, and it's a different period of time. And, you know, so, you know, it was it was fantastic. And that's the thing about theater that's so wonderful is that nothing can ever be duplicated. Then have ever. I, have I worked mm-hmm. with somebody else then as Greta? Any temptation? Oh, to say, she's fantastic. Well, that's not the way it's done. Or oh, anything. God, no. no. Oh, God, no. <laughs> no. Anna Reader need, needed no help uh. from me. None at all. Um, you know, and that's what's so great about it. You know, theater's meant to be done. Characters are meant to be played. And, you know, I'm all for anyone doing anything, you know, particularly if it's anything that I've done in the past or I'm thrilled to see people have a go at it. It and, means it's still alive, mm-hmm. you know. So, in revisiting it, was Donald Margulies around the yes. second time around? Yes, Because certainly was. it was new mm-hmm. when you were first in it. Did he did, had his perspective changed on the play at all? Well, did we he... were both just older. We were just mm-hmm. both sort of look at each other and just start to laugh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it was really, it was very very nice. You know? huh. Yeah. So from Shanley and Margulies mm-hmm. to Chekhov, the seagull. Yes. Yes. Uh, I've read not. The easiest experience. No, that was for a troubled. You. I've been in a lot of really bad productions. <laughs> As, you know, I've had nice, really, really good experiences and some really tough ones. Well, let's let's not pursue what the specific problems were, but. How do you, as a performer, it's mm-hmm. not like a film mm-hmm. where you've shot it, it's done, mm-hmm. it's in the can, mm-hmm. it may run on HBO no, you forever. Get to, you get to suffer eight live, times a week. <laughs> how do you get yourself in a place where you can keep going if you're not happy? with yeah. what you're in the midst of. Yeah, I mean, it happens all the time, and it will happen to every actor who's in the theater more than once. You know, it's happened to me many times in the past, and it will undoubtedly happen again many times in the future. And, you know, it is not fun. There is no question. Um, when you are in a, sh- a troubled production that you know is bad and you know you're bad in it, <laughs> you know, it's a little like having to drink a glass of sand every night. It's mm. just, it's miserable. It's... um you just feel awful. Uh, so you cling to the good things that are there, um, whatever love you may have for the play. Um, I did a very, very troubled production at one point, and every night I just gave myself some ridiculous thing to work on. Like I would pretend that my eyelashes were four feet long one night. I would pretend my ears were ten feet wide. I would Just anything, desperately, just to have something to try and pump some life into something that was really just not working at all. Hmm. So, you know, we all have them. <laughs> and you so, suffer through. So, where was the Hedda Gabler, which yeah, came next? Yeah, it was next. pretty bad. Another tough <laughs> one, too. <laughs> okay. Bad. We're moving yeah. right no, along. It was terrible. Let's was get a, to Holiday. We, we know Holiday, holiday was fun was a good, for But you. there is something. You just feel awful when you you feel like you're injecting the beast that is the theater with a deadly virus when you're in a bad production, particularly when it's a classic. You just feel awful. But there you is something. so bad. You were doing these in institutional theaters, yes. so there was a certain level of audience that was going to be there. It, they were not commercial productions where suddenly the audience just dries up. Yeah. There are people who are still there looking to see those shows. Yes, and, out of and, morbid curiosity. <laughs> you would hear them groan and, oh, and oh, it was just, it was terrible. But every, everybody has these experiences. I'm certainly not alone in it's, this. Years ago, the actor Stephen Collins was in a production mm-hmm. of uh, Anatole at Circle in the Square, right. which 
was not well received. And he wrote a fascinating piece, or at least it right. had his name on it, for one of the newspapers, saying oddly how freeing it was to be in a show that was not well received because then the audience could sometimes come in and be surprised in a yes. way they might not otherwise that's, well, be. Well, if the show is good, then that's certainly true. Or if you're proud of your work and you've been knocked, it is very freeing. Hmm. I mean, that's very, very true. You know, I've been in things where I've actually... And no one should tell you how to feel about your own work but you. You know, critics are given... Um, you know, I, I'm someone who believes that theatrical criticism is actually very important. It's important for historical record. It's important for the business. It's important. However, it's completely unfair to look to a critic to tell you how to feel about your own work. Hmm. Um, that gives them... That's not their job. It's psychologically just, just foolish. Um, and we're all susceptible to it. And because we're all human beings and we're all vulnerable. And I'm, you know, I go in as much pain as anybody else when there's a bad review. But sometimes you deserve bad reviews and sometimes you don't. Um, but you have, to be, you have to really stand by your work. When you feel like you're doing good work and you've been knocked, you have to stand by it. And, uh, and a lot of times the audience will completely go with you. Well, do, unless do you, you're deluded. Unless you're completely deluded. Do you read the reviews or do you try to avoid them? I try to avoid them. Uh -huh. um, I have made classic mistakes in the past of reading some that I that I never should have. Um, but I do try to avoid them because they just they don't help you if they're good or if they're bad. So mm -hmm. if you do read them or to hear them, how do you get beyond that then to it's go hard. back on stage? It's hard. It's it's not fun. You know, you don't you don't feel too good. But you have, you know, if the work is good, uh -huh. and if the play is good, and if your actors are good, then it's that that helps a lot. Yeah. You know that'll that'll ease whatever ego slap you've had. Mm. Well, let's get to the happy experience of Holiday. Mm -hmm. What what made that such a great experience for you? Playing oh. playing a role most associated with Catherine Hepburn. Well, that was nice. I mean, <laughs> that certainly was nice. I you know there are a lot of things about that production that I loved. I I, I also I love doing a play at Circle and Square. I had grown up going to all of those productions. I had seen, you know, so many plays there over the years. The fact that I actually got to play that house was, was just thrilling. Mm -hmm. And you heard a lot of people sort of knock that space. They would call it a basketball court. or it's a, It was a very deep three, three-quarter thrust. And uh, I loved the space. Mm -hmm. Much to my surprise, everybody said I was going to hate it, and I actually loved it. Well, it's an interesting relationship. At, this is the Circle of Square Uptown. There used to be the mm -hmm. downtown as well. There's an interesting relationship between the actor and audience in that space mm -hmm. because it mm -hmm. is. It's. It's. I mean, it's even deeper than a conventional thrust. Mm -hmm. You're really. Mm -hmm. You're really surrounded. You are completely. Yes. It is. It's almost in the round three quarters. You know, um, uh, the play was great fun, and I didn't realize how dark that play was. Really, there's some very you know, heart wrenching stuff, and people think of that play as very, all about style and you know, a sort of breezy quality about it, which is certainly there as well, which is fun. But there's some, there's a real undertow to that piece um, about family and loss and and a desire to break through. And, and it was great. It was fun. And Reg Rogers, who played my brother, was just brilliant in it. And he was nominated for a Tony and deservedly so. And I, I just loved it. We talk about theaters, about Circle and Square being like three quarters. Mm -hmm. You talk about the Biltmore being a beautiful theater, mm -hmm. which is a mm -hmm. regular proscenium. Mm -hmm. uh, do certain theaters have certain cachet for actors that you, you want to play a certain theater? And does that affect a performance? I don't know. I think there are certain theaters that feel that just feel right. Uh -huh. They just feel really good. And when there's a great match between a piece of work and a theater, a building itself, you, you just feel it just feels good. It sits in the building really well. You can you can feel it sort of um, 
the theaters used the way that it's meant to be used. In and terms of the stage, the size of the house? Uh, all it, of it. it the what? relationship between the house and the stage, the relationship of the geography of the, of the actor on the stage, how a set will fit into the, the space itself. And when there's a good match, it's it's pretty feels pretty good. Which is something that I don't think the average theater goer even thinks about no. sitting and looking at, at you up yeah, on stage, yeah. how the theater itself affects your performance. Absolutely. And it does. It and definitely so, does. And certainly a bigger house where you may have to project more to get to the rear mm-hmm. row, that, that might make a difference. Sometimes. But sometimes theaters are so beautifully designed that you don't. And if your voice is trained, then uh-huh. you don't have to push as much as one would think. Mm-hmm. You know, But it is interesting to find where your boundaries are within certain spaces like how little can I do in this space how little can I how can I how far can I push it just with simplicity of vocally physically how little can I do or how much can I do without seeming you know foppish or grotesque <laughs> hmm. so you sort of play with those boundaries as well like where how much can I get away with or and then how do you know when it's right or not right you can feel it you from, can feel from the audience response or from your own? Both. You can feel how, how the character fits in the play. You can feel how, the, how it will move forward. You see how it affects your, the other people who you're working with, how it will affect their storyline, if it will push the story forward, if it will help your fellow actor push into the next scene. You can, you can, there's a suspense in the air, and you, there's a tension, and you can feel when it's too tight or too loose. You know? In this period, you began mm-hmm. to start doing a good bit of film work, and mm-hmm. you've gone back and forth throughout... And virtually every article I read talked about your constant back and forth between mm-hmm. between uh, screen work and and stage work. And I'm just wondering what how much of a learning curve there was for you when you went into doing film work, mm-hmm. since you've talked exclusively about mm-hmm. about what's what's gone on for you in theater. Mm-hmm. It was it, there was it, film and television were, are the big surprise for me. It was nothing I ever wanted to do. <laughs> it was nothing I had any interest in doing. I was completely intimidated by by that world. I didn't know anything about it. I wasn't trained for it. I didn't particularly have an interest in it. Um, and I had a wonderful agent by the name of Brian Reardon who had a little more faith in my cinematic uh, potential than I did. And he sent me up for very, very small parts in movies. I had one day on searching for Bobby Fischer and one day on Dave and one day on Lorenzo's oil and slowly because he also knew how intimidated I was by it I just didn't think I belonged there you know and I trained my whole life to be in the theater and that's where I wanted to be so he very gently introduced me to this world and slowly over time I was like oh okay maybe maybe this isn't so bad maybe I can maybe this is you know something to maybe this is worthwhile as an actress for me to see if I can grow here or learn anything or will I enjoy it and um, I think the first Tales of the City was the first time when I sort of went oh oh I, I see there's there's a lot here to enjoy well when you were being trained at Juilliard were the terms television and film ever mentioned or was Never. it strictly theater strictly theater so now you're absolutely theater now you're mm-hmm. formally trained in theater how do you then mm-hmm. learn to be a television or a film yeah. actor well nobody can teach you that you know there's uh-huh. certainly not there's not the history you know film is a baby industry in com- comparison to the theater mm-hmm. and um, there's you sort of learn as you go um, a lot of it is learning what not to do as opposed to what to do because a lot of your job is taken care of by other people. You know, what you're responsible for on stage, you are not responsible for in film. 
So when yeah. you say learning what not to do, like not projecting to the last row, that sort well, of thing? Well, that's or? true. There's that. There's just the, the, um, the pitch of it, uh-huh. the pitch of the, the energy pitch of it, not to be too big. Um, there's that. There's also a lot about, you know, things are filmed out of order, so you have to sort of figure out how you're going to map out a performance if you can. Um, and then, you know, hair and makeup and everything's done by other people. I mean, you don't, you don't touch anything. <laughs> <laughs> and you don't have a history. You don't have time on your side. I mean, what I love about the theater, I think, more than anything, you know, is that only time will do certain things to a play. Only four months in will you get to a certain point where a play will deepen. And you can't push that. You just can't. Um, and that's what theater has for it that, that film that film doesn't. Film has other things that are equally as challenging. But the, the satisfaction of having done a play for six months... And the the connection that you have with the material, the language, the other people, the story, the building, you know, that's that's nothing that can be. And of course, theater has one other thing, a live audience, yes, which you don't yes. have in film and television. You that's true. You don't get that immediate feedback. Correct. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, coming back to theater, uh, the play Honor, which you yes. did on Broadway, yes. again, a tough uh, journalist, yes. interestingly yes, enough. That's right. Not that you were typed, to say the least. But right. can you tell us a little about Honor? Because it, it had a short run, but you were with the great Jane Alexander. Yes, yes. It was a really, that was a, that was a play that, I mean, I've been in bad plays. I mean, I know when, when productions are bad and troubled, you know, you know. And Honor was badly knocked. It was interesting. But that was not a bad play. Hmm. And that was not a bad production. It was a very good production. And so we were all very, very puzzled when it was knocked as badly as it was. Um, and I still don't quite understand it because I thought it was pretty good. Can you tell us a little about the play? It's a, another forehander uh, about a woman named Honor whose whose husband starts to have an affair with a, with a young writer who I played, the vixen, the, the marriage breaker. Hmm. Um, and it's about that. Hmm. Um, and they have a daughter who goes through, who meets the, the mistress and... Who Enid, Enid Graham played that role beautifully, and um, you know, so it was. Um, and Jerry Gutierrez directed it, the the late great Jerry Gutierrez, so who was a teacher of mine at Juilliard. So I was thrilled to work with him, and uh, so it was a really interesting experience, and and one that was, you know, disappointing to all of us who had worked on it because we were so proud of it. Hmm. Well, I mentioned before that Les Leos on Don Jerus is your third round of our production. Mm-hmm. Your first one we've already talked about, Hedda Gabler. Mm-hmm. The in-between one was Uncle Vanya. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about that, <laughs> how you got into that, and what that experience was for you at Roundabout. Uh, that was that was a rather <laughs> that was a good effort. We tried. <laughs> that was a good old effort there. You, you know, that was effort. another one, an A for effort. <laughs> we had problems. There were. The theater wasn't finished. The American It was supposed to be the first show to go into the American Airlines Theater, and the theater wasn't finished, so we had to, at the last minute, go into the Brooks Atkinson, and the set had to be rebuilt, and it wasn't the right size, and we had trouble sort of all the way through. Um, and it was just one of those productions that was, that was fine. It was not... Um, I had a very good time doing it. It didn't quite work for God knows what reasons, and uh, but some people really liked it. But it was one of those, you know... Uh, it was, it was a great experience. Well, it's nice that eight years later you're able to laugh and smile about it. Oh, I'm able, you're able to laugh and smile about all of them. I mean, no, Uncle Vanya was not a painful experience by any means. There's some that have been just downright painful, but that one was, you know, that was that was a good one. We all we tried. <laughs> well, you know? presumably a happy experience and much acclaimed was The Crucible. Yes. Taking on a play like The Crucible has to be interesting because it's a play, I think, certainly for people 
of our generation mm-hmm. more read than seen, assigned in classes, yes. not not yeah. performed. So, so how do you tackle a, yes. a, a formidable work like that? Well, I, I, when I was first offered it, I just sort of went, "Oh God, the Crucible." I was like, "Oh." Ye olde buckle shoes and ye olde speak. And do I really want to play Elizabeth Proctor in The Crucible? I just thought, oh, God. And I I went and asked some people who I really, whose opinion I really admire and, and said, do I want to do The Crucible? They were like, you absolutely do want to do The Crucible. You bet you want to do The Crucible. And I realized I had only seen high school productions of The Crucible. That was my experience of it, was, you know, sort of ass-numbing productions <laughs> of, you know, enthusiastic, but, you know, sort of these tiresome, you know, everyone's been to those nine-hour drama productions in high school, and they were just bad, a lot of them. So I didn't know the play. I thought I knew the play, and I didn't. And Richard Eyre was directing, who's one of the best out there. Liam Neeson was starring, who has become one of my dearest friends, and one of my uh, cinematic husbands. I've worked with him several times. Uh, and uh, Arthur Miller was involved in the production as well. And I, when I realized all of that, I was like, I'd be a fool not to do this. Well, whenever Arthur Miller's name comes up, mm-hmm. we ask, what was the experience of having Arthur Miller around? What did Arthur Miller have oh, to say God. about that play? Yeah. Obviously, yes. years yes. on from the impulses yes. that created it. He's the smartest man I've ever been around. Hmm. I mean, that was a mind... That was larger and more vibrant and more agile and more insightful than any I have ever been around. And when he died, I had a re- I went through a real period of deep mourning because hmm. I was like, where are those minds? You know, God, where are the people who who think like that? Hmm. You know, and I uh, I feel extremely lucky to have had a, the little time that I did with him. But the, one of the things that I remember him saying, and he was extremely helpful, and I remember our first run-through, I thought the entire company was just going to, we were all sick to our stomachs. You know, can you imagine doing a first run-through in front of Arthur Miller of the Crucible? Hmm. <laughs> we, were all, we were scared to death, and he was absolutely wonderful. Um, but I, re- I do remember him saying he saw it, and I think there was a pause, and he was like, well, clearly that was written by a young person. I mean, he wrote it when he was very young. So that was that was interesting. And it's it's one of the best experiences I've ever had in the theater, hands down. Did he make any changes to it then for, for no. this stage? No, it didn't. It's a masterpiece. Uh-huh. I mean, it really is a masterpiece. And when you get to work on a play at that level, with that skill, with that architecture within it, you, you, the more you do it, the more you see how the structure of it is just glorious. How one line will will ping and reverberate all the way through um, just the poetry of the language itself. I mean, it was just, it was amazing. Whenever people talk about The Crucible now, they want mm-hmm. to talk about the parallels to the House on american Activities mm-hmm. Committee and, and McCarthyism mm-hmm. and all of that. Was any of that a factor implicitly or explicitly in doing the show just a few years ago? Well, I think people were were m- more looking at how it re- reflected what was going on in our White House at, at the present time. Hmm. Um, Bush had, I, I think, just come out with a statement of you are either with us or against us. And that's right in the crucible. Hmm. That's a line right out of the crucible. You know, so there was a lot of, I think that's where it was, that's more what people were, were focusing on hmm. or what was reverberating a little bit more. Hmm. 
and you, we spoke just a moment ago about you know the preconceptions of the play. And you were working with an English director. Mm-hmm. You were working with Liam Neeson is Irish, I mm-hmm. believe. Mm-hmm. Did they? Did you have a sense that they came to the work in a different way than the Americans did? Is it? Are, is it Americans who have those associations, or is the work so known over there that it's? Oh, the work the is such. A, it's such a classic piece of work that's mm-hmm. about you know. But they don't come at it with the same. I was wondering if they came at it with the same sense of, oh, I think I know what this is, and I'm not so keen. No, I think it's you know, you know, Richard Eyre is a man of such you know exquisite taste and you know wonderful sophistication mm-hmm. that he 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 know he knew the power of that play mm-hmm. and he had done it before previously, and he and Arthur had a very close relationship. Mm-hmm. Well, we've been talking about what you have done in the past, what you are doing now, Les Liaisons Dangerous. What do you want to do in the future? Presumably more acting. You know, I, I'm i really bad at, uh-huh. at that. People ask me that question a lot. Uh-huh. And um, uh, I'm, not, I'm so not good at saying I want to do this, I want to do that. I, I wish I was better at it. It would make people who work with me much happier, <laughs> I think. <laughs> um and I think you you get in dangerous ground. You have to be very careful if you pick your own work. I think you have to be very very careful. It can be n- not the wisest thing to do. Well, it's one of those things where when a role is presented, you know that it's right or not. You just kind of know it, or do you go looking for a particular role? No, I don't go looking. Yeah. No, yeah. I mean I and a lot of times the things that have come to me that I've been like, oh, I don't know if I want to do that, have have turned out to be the best experiences, mm. or the things where I think I don't know how to do that, or am I would I be any good at that, or you know I don't know. You know, I remember I felt that way when I first read Sight Unseen. I felt that way when I read, when The Crucible came up. I was like, I don't know if I know anything about Elizabeth Proctor. And I loved it. Mm. You know, I loved it. Um, but I'm certainly hoping to work with, you know, Richard Eyre again. I'm hoping to work with Dan Sullivan again. And basically, those people, they'll, I'll do whatever they want me to do. How about any, <laughs> any other areas of the theater, directing or any other areas? or just? St- I, mean, I, I, th- no, no I still desire. feel like I have so much to learn. I got a lot left to figure out, so... <laughs> Well, right now, as mentioned several times, Les Liaisons Dangerous, starring in that at Roundabout, the American Airlines Theater, which now is completed. It is a beautiful theater. Gorgeous. <laughs> it's in full it operating is. condition. So thanks so much, Laura, for being with us today on Downstream Center. my pleasure. Center. Thank you fun. for having Thank me. You. Thanks, Laura. For the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theater Wing is available online, on demand, for free from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten. For Downstage Center, that is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.